Welcome to episode number 17 of the Road to Cinema podcast, featuring Oscar-nominated editor Pamela Martin. We'll discuss her collaborations with director David O. Russell on both The Fighter and David O. Russell's debut feature film, Spanking the Monkey. Her work with directors Jonathan Dayton and Valerie Ferris on Little Miss Sunshine. In the very beginning of her career, working as an assistant to Oscar-winning editor Tim Squires on many of Ang Lee's early films, including The Wedding Banquet. For more information on the Road to Cinema podcast, to read the Road to Cinema blog, and to watch our Road to Cinema YouTube series, please visit jogroadproductions.com. And you can follow us on Twitter at jogroad for the latest updates. And now we join Oscar-nominated editor Pamela Martin as she discusses her early work on Ang Lee's films with Oscar-winning editor Tim Squires. So I was wondering about the very beginning of your career. Uh, I believe you were the assistant to Tim Squires. You worked on a lot of Ang Lee's films, and you were on uh, The Wedding Banquet and Pushing Hands. Um, so I was wondering some of the essential the essential uh, editing lessons that you learned uh, working with Tim <laughs> Squires and sort of how that carried over when you were editing on your own. Yeah, I mean, I think every editor needs to be an assistant because one day you're going to have to tell assistants what to do, and you're going to have to know how that job works, and, and really just learning the whole process of, what happens to a film when it's finished? How do you finish a film? What is an obstacle check? You know, in those days, we were cutting on 35 millimeter. At least, I worked on Aang's first three films and with Tim Squires, and the first one was on 35 millimeter. Um, the next two were on Avid, but, you know, I had to learn the whole process of how do you mix a movie? How do you make your tracks? And actually, one of the best things Tim taught me not only how to be a good assistant, but uh, I had already cut my own projects in college and whatever short projects after that that I could get my hands on. And I had always um, sounded it on my own films. And he uh, kind of groomed me to be a dialogue editor with him because we basically, those films were so low budget, especially the first one, that we had to do all the sound as well. So, and then after that, Tim and I went on to a couple of projects as a sound editing team, just as a job on, you know, when we didn't have any other work on a picture. Uh, but being a good dialogue editor teaches you a ton of tricks about how to make a, a rough cut play smoothly. Uh, it's super important. So I would say those were the main things. Plus, I love just being in the process, which is sweet guy and so is Tim and, and it was great a great experience to be around that and see how it's done by yeah. the pros, right? Yeah. Sound editing seems to be sort of a uh, sort of a, a unappreciated uh, skill. Uh, you know it's sound essential. Yeah. It's essential. I mean, you know and all editors from you know, back in the film day too, we always had to cut our own tent music. You know, we ha you know, bigger movies have music editors as well, but when you're starting off and you're cutting independent films, you have to wear all those hats. Uh, and, I mean, anybody in editing who goes and knows what it's, anyone in editing knows what it's like to look at a rough cut that doesn't have any sound effects and any music in it. I mean, a lot of that, it's the bells and whistles, right? <laughs> I mean, it helps smooth the whole film out. It can help you um, create emotion 
or support a motion where you needed to be supported, et cetera. So uh, that's an invaluable tool. And, uh, you know, back in the days when we were cutting on 35, and I went on to cut movies on 35 before it all went digital, uh, you could all play two tracks of sound on a flatbed. So you would only play your two tracks of dialogue when you were working. Wow. Or you would have um, one track of dialogue or, or you, against a music track. Uh, you so know, you do, sometimes you do like very in a, on a low budget film. You might do a small mix down just to be able to play them against each other. But it yeah. was, you know, you didn't really see the magic until you got to the mixing stage, or unless you were uh, mixing something at a live screening, you know, for your investors or your producers or anything like that. So sometimes you'd have to play maybe four, five, six tracks and mix them live. So, so you weren't. So, if you had multiple actors in a scene, maybe let's say a half a dozen, six actors, um, sometimes you would have to mix all of their tracks together to one track just because you couldn't manipulate individual tracks. Yeah, I mean, you know, when, when they're recorded on the set, the mixer always puts separate mics on everybody, but they always do a rough mix down as well because, and and even for the avid, they do that. Uh, you're not always digging into the individual tracks. It's usually on an, an as-needed basis, but on when you were cutting on when we were cutting on film, you would, you know, you'd have overlapping dialogue just in the process of cutting, so you would have to have more than one track dialogue going. You you were kind of lucky if you could fit it all on two tracks. You know? <laughs> so. Uh, so I was curious about your transitioning. Uh, you, you you had a transition into editing your first feature film, which was for David O. Russell, which was also his first feature, uh, Spanking the Monkey. Right. Uh, so I was wondering, you know, sort of how you met David and what that collaboration process was like on his first film. Yeah. Uh, prior to that, because I was working on English films, that those were um, those were produced by Good Machine. James Seamus and Ted Hope's company, and it was just the very beginning of Good Machine. And so they knew I wanted to cut pictures. Um, and actually, before I did, I am pretty sure, yeah, it was before I did Spanking the Monkey, they said they their friend Tom Noonan had directed a film called What Happened Was, and that he needed some help uh, doing a final pass on it and kind of getting it to where it needed to be. So I went and worked with Tom, cutting picture with him as an associate editor. And then I don't really remember how I got recommended to, to David, but somehow just being in that independent world in New York, independent film world, I got recommended to him. I read the script, and I really loved it. And I went and met with him, and uh, you know, it was an extreme low-budget film. It was in the can for seventy thousand dollars. Wow, seventy thousand dollars! Seventy thousand dollars. Incredible. In post, we got another hundred and thirty thousand to finish it, and um, what were they going to say? So the um, oh yeah, so you know, they offered me the job, and at the same time, I was offered an assistant job that was a better assistant job, a better paying assistant job than I'd ever had. You know, a lot of money, but for me it was. And I remember asking Tim, you know, the spanking the monkey, they couldn't pay. They were going to give deferred payment uh, so that if the movie made money, then you'd see your money. 
So I went to Tim and I said, I don't know, you know, I got offered to cut this movie, uh, but I got a lot more money. I could go do this assistant job. It's just kind of a step up in terms of, you know, the scale of the film. And he said, uh, if you can handle it and you can get by, always take the cutting job. So I took it. And, and actually, because I kind of hesitated, they, said, they came back to me and said, how much money do you need to survive? <laughs> so I told them what my rent was, and I figured I did the math and stuff. You know, if I had $150 a week, I could pay my rent. It was maybe my rent might have been 500 or something. I was in an illegal sublet in New York City with living with a friend, and I thought I could get by on $600. I had enough savings that I could, you know, I could get by on the food for $100. <laughs> I mean, I just figured that's, that was my bare minimum. And so they said, okay, fine. And they gave me a deferred deal as well, which incidentally I did see later on. I got my check for some additional money once the film sold and theatrical so on uh so on that film since it was such low budget uh were you editing by yourself or did you have any assistance working i had assistance what we did is we cleared out david's dining room in his apartment they moved all the furniture out his uh wife was pregnant with their first baby at the time and uh anyway we moved in the editing equipment into that space i got an aspiring assistant and an apprentice editor um and i think oh yeah i had one assistant who came with me when i had to go on location in upstate new york during the shoot so we lived in a house and had the editing equipment in that house and i brought one assistant with me she came back to new york with me after and worked with me for a while and then i don't really remember what happened but some, maybe she got another job that actually paid money <laughs> so she moved on and then i had another assistant come in and i had an apprentice as well um and so they just wanted to learn how to do it so fortunately i had that experience with tim where he had taught me how to do it and i was able to show them how to do it from them not know anything uh how to reconstitute film and um, do the log books and take care of the trims. And so we had the racks, we had all the film equipment and everything in one in his one room in his apartment. Wow. So we did it in there, and I'd show up there every morning at nine o'clock, and we'd work all day. And sometimes I'd stay and have dinner with him and his wife, and you know, and I just uh, we did it. You know, I I don't remember how you know. I imagine that the we, they shot in the summertime, from what I recall. And then we were getting it ready to go to Sundance. So we, we locked and mixed everything, you know, probably December. So it was pretty quick. Uh, but it was a great experience, you know. I think it was exciting for myself, and it was exciting for David, too. He was, you know, he had made some short films before, but this was his first feature. And it, it was a, we worked really well together. It was a, we had a really good time. Yeah. And one of my assistants, actually my apprentice editor, I'm still in touch with after all these years. We're, we're very good friends. It was on the East Coast. Um, so I met a lot of nice people too. Definitely. And uh, it's it's an interesting film, Spanking the Monkey. It's a coming-of-age story, but it kind of has this kind of dark, wry tone <laughs> to it. Uh, you know, this this kid who kind of comes home from college for the summer, he's sort of stuck taking care of his mom, and, you know, they're kind of entrapped in this setting. And... Yeah. Uh, 
I was wondering if the tone of the movie uh, changed at all from going from the script to when you started editing? I don't think so. I mean, I think it was all... Well, actually, I should take that back. Um, we knew it was a dark comedy. There are comic elements. I mean, look at any of David's movies. They're funny, but they're funny in a serious way. <laughs> right? The humor is in... The tragedy. Yeah, even in the fighter, there's you know, which is a very dramatic film. There are so many kind of you know. Life is funny. Yeah. Even when it's tragic, <laughs> it's funny. That's the way the you know, that's the way life is. Um, what was interesting to me was I remember going to see it at the Angelica Theater in New York after it opened. I wanted to just go see it with a regular audience, sit in the back, you know, and I had. Until that point, I had I'd seen it at a cruise screening, but I'd never uh, seen it in a theater with an audience I didn't know. And what struck me was how uncomfortable the movie is and how there were these bursts of insane laughter. Anytime there was something a little bit funny, it's like people were holding their breath and they were relieved to laugh. Like, and so... It was actually funnier than I thought it was. The uncomfortableness of the dark, how the dark parts of that movie affected the audience in a way that when you gave them a release, it, a humorous comic release, it was a big one because there was all this pent-up, you know, anxiety yeah there's almost like this tension this sort of suspense yeah. like are they gonna be like are they gonna like attack each other is it gonna <laughs> yeah. go in a, in a different more bizarre way it's like you know yeah <laughs> and, and it's funny and, and talking about the tone and the editing process i remember this one funny thing where we try all different songs at the end of the movie and, and different endings and i don't recall exactly what we did but i remember we cut the end a little bit different and we slammed in this like tune immediately to the collaboration process with the director so in this case um you know you're you know it's a really sort of like you're working in 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 the director's home yeah. uh he's always around uh so with with david both on uh spanking the monkey and the fighter does he give you room to sort of work on your own and then show him your interpretation of a cut or does he oh, like yeah. to i mean look when you're cutting on film there's a lot of it's a very for some it's a very tedious process so and it's pretty much on any film. It depends on the director, but at the beginning, you you watch the scenes, you talk about it a lot. Well, I, get, I should say, on Spanking the Monkey, there was a lot more discussion going on before doing it, and that was because it was on film. If you decided you wanted to do a major recut on a scene, you were going to have to tear all the film apart. And so there would be a lot of talking about it before you did it. Nowadays, 
you don't really need to have a big discussion. You just try it. You try everything because you can save a zillion, you know, an infinite number of versions of the, of the scene um, in the digital world. So uh, there was a lot more discussing. And then in terms of him being right next to me, you know, he would go away. I would cut the scenes, recut the scenes. He'd come back. And so that's the way the process worked when you're cutting on film. And then as you get closer to your fine cut, and it's very similar to when you cut on an Abbott too, uh, then the director is usually there more um, for the last little, like, tiny polishing stuff, right? Yeah. Now, on uh, on the fire, it was, it was a bit different because, first of all, they shot in Boston, and I stayed in Los Angeles. Uh, there's also a lot of a lot of material that's off script on that film, unlike Spanking the Monkey, which was, you know, a low budget film shot on film, it had to be the script, you know, <laughs> you know, you know, venture far from that. Uh, it's a very different film. The Fighter has the conceit of the HBO interview within the film, the film within the film, and so there was a lot of improvisation and there was a lot of uh, additional material filmed just on the side that could have been the HBO people interviewing char characters throughout the film, where David would just, you know, let's say they were setting up for another scene in another uh, on location, David would take all the, the seven sisters into a green room and sit them down in, in their costumes and everything in their hair and say, okay, he just lost the Munjin fight, let's talk about that, you know. <laughs> so he would place them in different times throughout the film and just interview them as if he was the HBO interviewer. So there was all this off-script stuff. Um, I'm putting, I had to put together the entire film, you know, without the director there, which is normally how it works anyway. Um, but I wasn't on location, so, he, you know, if I had to send him anything, just a few scenes, and I would just uh, send them digitally. Uh, and then, yeah, I mean, he, he, he would come in to the edit room, usually towards the late afternoon, uh, you know, we'd talk about the scenes, and then I'd go and cut and recut and work them and change them and uh, there was and also you have to remember that by the time he did the fighter he had a lot of uh, other projects to juggle at the same time you know Spanking the Monkey was his first film it was the only thing to concentrate on that was the film that was going to set things in motion for his career and so it was a singular focus you know you work with any experienced director nowadays they probably have other projects they're juggling so they can't really be there quite as much unless you know some do but um you know david's uh, office is right across the hallway and uh yeah i mean that's that was actually like one of the great things about doing that film is you know he had a trust in me and i would go in and do the work and then we would regroup and discuss it, et cetera. And then, you know, towards the end, he had to come in and see it more and more often, and then finally you're together at the mix. Yeah. What I, what I love about The Fighter is that there's such an energy, there's such a, a rhythm to it. And, uh, you know, among many things, there's that, you know, the great opening of the film is, you know, you have the, the little documentary snippet of, you know, with Mark Wahlberg and Christian Bale, and they're having that, that whole rapport. And then, it, you know, it cuts to this scene on the, on the, on the street of Wall, Massachusetts, yeah. And it's just like, I mean, the rhythm of it is just so vibrant. Um, yeah, and was, the, 
you know, the um, the interview was not planned. It was not scripted for the beginning of the film. The film was originally uh, was scripted to open on that road crew scene in the streets of Lowell, and uh, you know, it took a long time for us to get the, the opening right. Uh, and we also had the you know the the Sugar Ray Leonard footage mixed in there as well. Uh, but yeah, it really, it really, I feel like that finding those bookends of the two of them, the interview at the beginning and the end was, was key. And you, and you see the relationship develop through the film. So by having those bookends, yeah. you, you see the, the completion of that narrative. Yeah. It's, it's a beautiful thing. Before production begins, you read a script yeah. and then, you know, footage gets shot and then you go to edit. Yeah. Uh, when you're editing, do you use the script a lot um, as as a backbone to put together the scenes, or do you sometimes look at the footage as you know this is just you know I'm just trying to make the movie out of what I have here and the script has been written, but right now I'm just working with this footage. Well, I mean, when you start putting a film together, yeah, you look at the script. I mean, I always. I know, you know, by the time they shoot, I know the script intimately. I've read it many, many times. And in many cases, I've, I'm involved before the shooting, so I've given script notes sometimes months ahead of time and gone back and forth with the director talking about the script before I even sit down with that material. Um, so it is your kind of roadmap, right? But at the end of the day when you're actually, when you have the film all together, so beyond, you know, uh, just cutting the individual scenes, but now you have your whole movie, you know, the script gets tossed aside more or less. I mean, the edit is your your final rewrite, and many times, I mean, my philosophy is, okay, you've shot it, but now the script is, in a way, the script is dead, and you have to make the best movie with what you have. It may be slightly different than what you thought it was going to be. So, and then there are films where a lot of it is scripted and improvised, like, you know, what the way David's, David did The Fighter, yeah. uh, where there's a ton of material, and it comes in in the morning, and you go, okay, I thought I was getting scene five and scene 22, and this is sort of scene five, and okay, here's 22, and what is all this stuff? <laughs> you, know, you just go like, I don't even know what this is for. Um, and so in that case, you don't have a script to go by. Yeah. You know? you're, and a lot of times, uh, when I, especially if you're working with actors that improvise or directors that, that push them in that direction, uh, the scenes themselves take on their own life and they become something else and it's not what you have on the page anyway. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, in that case, you work with what you have and try to make a good scene out of it. Have, have you ever been in situations where you're looking at the dailies and you're, you know, you're just trying to put a rough cut of the scene together and you realize maybe the director hasn't shot the proper coverage that you think sure. might entail to make the scene fit and then you're sort of problem solving to make a version of it that you think you know would be the best with what you have yeah well this is why editors are on during the shoot because your sets are dressed and your actors are still there 
So it's your responsibility. You have to get through the dailies as fast as you can. It's a very rough pass, and the reason is you want to keep pace with the shoot before actor A goes home. <laughs> actor B is wrapped and goes to Europe on another movie or whatever, so because you need to tell them when they're missing shots, and it's a const- there's a constant dialogue between myself, the director, the um, line producer, the script supervisor about these pieces, missing pieces. And there are times where not just you didn't get the coverage, but you didn't, sometimes the moment is missed, or, or sometimes it's an issue with performance in a particular scene, or, you know, a horrible continuity mistake that, that just can't be cut. So, uh, if, yeah, you have to work the material and try to figure out how to troubleshoot that, what would you do instead if you couldn't have what you wanted? And at the same time, you get into the thing where they want to see what the mistake is or what's missing, so you have to edit it as best you can to show what's missing or what is the best you can do with what you have so they can make a financial decision about whether or not it's worth getting the missing pieces. Yeah. Do you uh, do you feel like some editors uh, I've spoken to sometimes say, you know, like a performance can be uh, maybe like manipulated in the editing room, not necessarily created, but sort of you can sort of create missing pieces of a performance that may not necessarily be as good as it is when you're editing. If there's sort of the proper coverage, uh, mm-hmm. do, you, do you ever feel that maybe that's possible that you can sort of improve upon a performance? Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, I've you know, I would just one example is what if you have an actor that can't get through their lines? I mean, that's just the sim- sim- simplifying it. What if they can't get through their line? Uh, without stammering or forgetting or or whatever it is. You have to craft it in a way that makes it look smooth. You do that by cutting to the good pieces, by cutting cutting to another character, listening to that character. This is how you you make it appear seamless. You make it appear seamless. That's one thing. Another thing is... um, I mean, there are all kinds of subtleties. It, it, for performance, it's really about what feels what feels real and authentic. That makes a good performance. And it could be something so simple as, wow, they did this whole monologue, but this, these two words here just sound off to me. Because, you know, dialogue is music. You know, it's it's got its own rhythm, its own feel, and so much of what sounds natural is it's a sound thing a lot of the time. And so, going back to my you know dialogue experience, dialogue editing experience, well, you know, this one moment rang false to me. If only they had said, this, I don't want to cut away from them. If only they had said this one thing with a with a little more compassion. Well, you go back to their takes and you hear that thing you're looking for in another take. You put it in their mouths. You replace the words, the, the line readings. And that's, you know, that's done all the time, all the time. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, I mean, it's all about finding the best pieces, what works best for the scene. And, it's, and a lot of times, you know, you need a look from an actor to express something, and you don't quite have it, and you go back through your footage. You even use the footage that wasn't meant to be on screen where the director is redirecting the actor and they're just looking 
listening to them and trying to digest what what the director is telling them. If the camera's still rolling, you use things that are close to the slate, you know, <laughs> or they called cut, but the film didn't stop running yet, and they just sat there for a moment. I mean, all these things are stolen, uh, stolen moments that are used in movies uh, to make to make the uh, actors performances play in the best way possible. Yeah, and I'm sure sometimes in moments too, um, you know, where you're manipulating dialogue or sort of going to different uh, to different coverage as you're moving along there to, to help the performance, you can probably even help pace too if you're trying to shorten a scene and compress sure, it. Sure, Absolutely. I mean, the pacing, the rhythm of it is key, you know, and like I, like I just mentioned how, I, you know, I feel that dialogue is music. I mean that it's got its own, it's, it's the rhythm, the cadence, how people speak, the pace, all of that ties together. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you can absolutely change the pace of things. Yeah. That's why you, ha you have coverage. Yeah. When, uh, when you have a first cut of a movie uh, and you know that it's like way too long and it has to be trimmed down sometimes, mm -hmm. you know, extensively, um, is it a difficult process then to make that second cut and start taking a lot out? Do you feel that instead of taking out scenes, you may just be trying to just sort of uh, trim scenes down and sort of make them to kind of the bare essentials of what they can be? varies from film to film. When I'm working with someone like Miguel Arteta, uh, we have, we've worked together for so long that we do have a shorthand and understand each other very well. So, for instance, you know, on his last movie that I did, I got a scene into the edit room one day. It was crazy long, it, you know, it, and I, I knew in my heart, this, this scene could never survive in this movie <laughs> at this length. And... Uh, it just wasn't my cup of joe. And so I called him up and I said, Miguel, do you really, this, this scene is, you know, 10 pages long and no, nobody is a children's movie. Nobody's going to sit through this scene you know, <laughs> in the theater. And he said, do the cut, do the cut however you want it. And I just went, I didn't even assemble the whole scene. I just went straight to the, uh, how should I say, the efficient version <laughs> of the scene. But really, the process generally is you cut the whole film. It is a bit, it's fat, it's always fat, because you don't want to start throwing stuff away before the director's come in and worked with you. Unless you do have a shorthand with the director, and you've had a conversation, you just feel in your gut that, oh my God, this will never, this, this, is, out of, this is out of place. And then you have that conversation, they say, you know, generally they agree with you. They say, like, you know, I was felt that as I was shooting it, just do what you think, you know. And the, but most of the time, especially if you're working with someone for the first time, you put the whole thing together, everything, good or bad. And then some directors will sit and watch the whole rough cut, which is, I think, um, only to torture themselves. Uh, a lot of directors, and I kind of prefer this method, just jump in and start working, you know. Uh, start from the beginning or you want to work on the last act first, fine, whatever it is, and you just work it scene by scene. And it doesn't necessarily mean that you're cutting the time out at that point. It means you're kind of honing in on what the crux of the scene is and getting, you know, it nuanced in a way that, that it was meant to be in there in the director's eyes. And then, yeah, you start dropping scenes. You watch, Once you start watching the whole film, it becomes apparent, like, I'm checking, 
kind of fidgeting around here in the second act in this area. This is really slow in here. Or you, or you immediately say, I could cut that scene in half. Let's just get out here because that material, I don't need that information. Or it's repeated over there. So some of it's very obvious in terms of what you cut out. And sometimes they're big cuts right at an early stage. And other times it's small incremental pieces as you go. Uh-huh. Uh, do you sometimes know when you're when you're watching a cut, um, sort of instinctually, where you can spot music, uh, you know, using music, whether it be score music uh, or just you know putting in songs that could really elevate a scene and uh, sure. make it pop more than it could without the music? Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, yeah. I mean, there are obvious places like you have a montage, you need music, you know, or um, but. Yeah, I mean, those things come come to me all the time. Where I feel like score could really support this moment. Or, you know, I remember when I was working on Ruby Sparks, we had this whole section of the movie that were, and it's, you know, it's happened in a lot of movies. I mean, it happened on Fighter too. Where you have a bunch of scenes together. They're individual scenes. And then you try something, you try musically to tie them all together. And it really pops and makes it amazing. And actually, uh, it, get, it, gets a, it helps form a cohesiveness of a section of the film that you didn't have before or that was there but just kind of hanging without this thing to kind of tie it all together. Um, or you find the sound of the movie that way. On Ruby Sparks, it was interesting because... Uh, we were working with Nick Girata, the composer, who had done the music with his band Devachka along with Michael Dana on Little Miss Sunshine. And he came back to do the music. Well, he, he wasn't hired yet, but he was do- he did some demos. We had this little thing where we had an operatic piece that was a source cue in the movie um, that I overlapped into another scene, and it really... It really helped the humor in that next scene. And so we thought, oh, you know, the three of us, John and Val, are thinking, wow, this is really interesting. Like, maybe this could be kind of an operatic thing. I don't know. So Nick came in. He watched the film. We sent him away. We said that we had this one little tiny opera piece, a couple little, you know, not much. It was basically the film did not have music yet, um, aside from a couple of places. And... He went away, and he did a demo on his own. He wrote two pieces. He had hired a, an opera singer from Alien Opera, I think. Anyway, he wrote these beautiful things, and we were like, wow, that's so beautiful, but I don't know what we do with it. I mean, it's not worth anything. It's just inspired by. And they sat for a while. And we were still in discussions with him and figuring out what we're going to do. And one day I was in the edit room early, and I we had this whole section where... Um, I don't know if you've seen the film, but... Oh, yeah, it's really... Uh, I always thought the music in the film, especially in the silent moments where Paul Dano is sort of um, sort of pining for Zoe Kazan's character, for Ruby Sparks, that the music sort of creates this uh, interesting dynamic, especially even when he's on the, the typewriter uh, at the very end and he's writing all the things about yeah. her and, you know, there's sort of this intense emotion to it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think the score is amazing, the section I'm talking about is when he's 
um, gone and written that, I can't remember the exact words, but he wanted her to be perfectly content with him. And so there are these, these scenes where she's clinging to him endlessly, like they're attached, as if they're attached at the hip. And it's kind of horrifying. Um, anyway, one day I went in and I said, you know what, I'm going to try this operatic cue. And this was, you know, we probably had the cue for a month already. And they put it up against these scenes where they're eating breakfast together and they go uh, to, the movie, to the movie theater. And, and it, it's a very funny scene. There are funny scenes where where she just can't even let go of him, uh, and the opera just made it soar. It was amazing. And they came in, they showed up, and I said, "Oh my God, look at this! You got to look at this! Like, what do you think?" And they were just like, "This is it!" And then we knew Nick was the right guy, and, and it went from there. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, the music is a constant exploration, and it's great, you know, when you have the music editor too helping you make those decisions you know yeah i even think in uh, in little miss sunshine when the movie opens and you know there's the montage where you're um introduced to all the characters uh you know the music you know and then it lands on uh steve carell's face and sort of the title comes on yeah the uh the music really elevates that too to kind of put you in the mood of the movie and i think yeah, that's really know, essential funny. they had that music in mind when they were working on the script really uh, that music is um Part of it was, when we cut the music on that film, we borrowed little pieces from Dvachka's music from an album of theirs, um, little instrumental portion. And then gradually, they, you know, they would give us, you know, just the instrumental tracks from it, and they would split them out so we could slide things around and, and make different combinations of their signature sounds from, the, from this one album. And... Uh, and then Michael Dana helped do that, too, to kind of make it a cohesive score that was a picture because he had so much experience doing that, and they had never done that before. Um, and then, you know, and Michael went on and wrote, obviously wrote some of the music himself as well. Um, yeah, that music was intended to be there, and, and we were constantly experimenting with how it could be there and what in what form. And it just, you know, took shape over a period of time. Yeah. Um, I was wondering on Little Miss Sunshine, uh, you know, you're working with, you know, you have so many characters uh, that you have to cut between. Mm -hmm. uh, was that a challenge in terms of sort of finding the point of view of certain scenes or even trying to figure out when a certain character needs to be left out or needs to be in? Um, on Little Miss Sunshine, it was not very difficult. I mean, you know, you have to you know, you have these huge scenes like the dinner scene, which is this very long scene with all of them, and there's a lot going on. Um, I love cutting scenes like that. It's super fun to juggle all that at once. Uh, but the script was in such good shape, and I don't, I don't know. I mean, it's so long ago, it's hard for me to remember exactly, but um, I feel like it wasn't... I mean, obviously, sometimes a character is not... Is, something about a character is not working as well as something else, or there's too much of something. I mean, uh, and, and it's about balance. I mean, the fighter is a prime example. I mean, talk about an ensemble cast. I mean, it's enormous, you know, compared to Little Miss Sunshine, which is whatever, people, right? <laughs> um, you know, it's a story of Mickey and Dickie and the mother and the father and the seven sisters and, you know, there's all these characters and Charlene, um, the girlfriend. Uh, it is about 
balance. It's how much can the film take, how much can it handle before it, you know, topples over. So, yeah, a lot of stuff does end up on the cutting room floor um, or repurposed in a different way yeah. in the movie. I was wondering, uh, so on Ruby Sparks and Little Miss Sunshine, uh, I believe Jonathan Dayton, Valerie Ferris are a husband and wife directing yeah. team, which is you know very unique, a husband yeah. and wife directing team. Uh, so I was wondering sort of the difference between working with one director and then working with uh, two directors. Uh, is it sort of a differing opinion sometimes, or do they work as sort of one unit? Uh, you know, they're, they're a couple. Um, they've worked together for many, many, many years in commercials, music videos, television. Uh, but they don't always agree. Who does? <laughs> it's like I don't always agree with the director. Or uh, and but you know, but it always gets worked out. I mean, I don't know what to say about that except that they get along. It's it's a beautiful experience. I mean, I, they're actually like two of my favorite people to work with. They're so lovely and so smart, and love the editing process, and are excited to be in there. And they they do their homework, and they're ready. You know, they come in, they're ready to work, and they're excited about it. And you know, when disagreements come up, uh, obviously there come. Sometimes there are times. You know, I you know if they just in your interpersonal skills when to stay out of it and to not <laughs> but sometimes they would turn to me and say okay what do you think you know about this disagreement and I would weigh in you know and sometimes that would sway it one way or the other and the beautiful thing about Jonathan and Valerie is they're both equally smart and equally creative and equally you know sensitive and all these things nobody is right all of the time Neither one of them. I think it would be a difficult process if one, if there was a dominant creative voice in that couple, but there isn't. Yeah, and they have such a unique uh, visual style. Whether you look at their commercials and music videos, or even to the films, uh, you know, it just it's so it's so vivid. Uh, you yeah. Know, Ruby Sparks, Little Miss Sunshine. Yeah, they've got style. 